last Sunday after Greg's sermon on giving the devil his due, and he wasn't exalting Satan or encouraging us to give too much attention to him, uh, Brian came up to me afterwards and reminded me Years ago, we took a course called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And the design of that course that focuses on missions is that every week there would be a different lecturer. And primarily, they would be people who had um, on-the-field missions experience. Uh, Greg shared with us that Uh, One of the ways God started breaking down some of his own rationalistic uh, rejections of the idea that Satan still oppresses, it maybe at times possesses people, was the, the witness, the testimony of missions professors that he had at Harding who had lived in Africa, Asia, other places, and it had encountered spiritual forces that their rational upbringings didn't contain. And, and even more so than uh, encountering those things, uh, what they experienced felt a lot more like Scripture than what some of our secular, rationalistic perspective uh, allows for. Uh, Brian shared uh, that in the perspectives course, this it, it was 15 weeks of different lecturers. The ones who had on-the-field experience came from very different places, different ages, But there was this common thread that we kept encountering things that were a part of, in that one slide, the excluded middle. And this bifurcation, this this mental construct that there are the things that go on here on the earth and those can all be measured by science. And then there's the heavenly realm for those of us who are believers where God and Jesus live, and the Holy Spirit primarily resides. We understand that, but it's that excluded middle, that gap, that we're very, very uncomfortable with. Because it doesn't fit our worldview. Uh, I've wrestled with this week. How... Honest, do I become? Uh, We've used that word some on Sunday mornings in the Sunday school class, and if you haven't been here, I apologize. It doesn't make a lot of sense to you. But uh, the discussion has been around how do we reach the place of maturity that we can have hard conversations about things that we bring different experiences and perspectives to them without the fear that, Discussions and disagreements are going to rupture our fellowship. And some believe that we've lost many of our young people over the generation, the last couple of three generations especially, uh, 
because of our unwillingness to be honest. I wish we would use the word transparent a little more than honest. Because I'm concerned it implies when we say that we're not being honest that we're being intentionally deceptive. And those are not the same. There are times we can be reticent to talk about things out of concern, out of love, out of respect. And it's not about dishonesty at all. Uh, It's out of deep concern. Now maybe it's misplaced concern. And there may be a lack of wisdom in some of that. Um, let Let me just be a little bit autobiographical and take the risk of vulnerability, some transparency. When I went to Fried Hardeman in 1976 through 80, I was schooled in a mechanical approach to Scripture that came especially out of a philosophical school of thought known as cessationism. The idea that the miracles of Old and New Testament times had ceased because they happened primarily for the sake of getting scriptures written. And once that work was done, they weren't needed any longer. It wasn't presented as a philosophical precision. It was presented as truth. And any sane, rational Bible graduate from Fried Hardeman, when I was there, that that was the perspective you were going to take on these things. And I remember as a, I don't know, freshman or sophomore in Dow Flat, uh, one of his... Paul's Epistles class, where we were looking at, uh, there were two different Paul's Epistles, one Paul's Epistle, two, and I don't remember now which of those books that Paul wrote broke down on that basis, but there were a couple of different courses that were offered, required for Bible majors. Um, when, When you get into some of Paul's language in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about everyone having a spiritual gift... And maybe as a young person, it's the first time you've ever really read those for yourself or really dug into those or you've been called to study them. You begin to wonder, does that mean we have gifts today? Why haven't I heard this before? This is amazing, remarkable news. What's up with this? Why why has there been such a, a void of conversation to fresh young minds? Um. We tried every way we could think of to get our brother Dal Flat to express his personal opinions on some of these things. And we could never draw him into the discussion. Ever. Uh, 
The problem when you really get into the Word and stay in the Word is it roots out some of the previous decisions you may have made about what can and can't happen in our world. Uh, there started being some cracks, some fissures in this philosophical perspective. Uh, the longer I stayed in the Word, it, it just didn't carry the weight that it had present, been presented to me as carrying. And it was sometime late 80s. I, if I went back, I could probably figure out when, but dates aren't that significant to me to, enough to do the research generally. Uh, Deborah or Mark, my brother, are much better at coming up with specific dates. So if you ever want to know when something happens, don't ask me. Just go ahead and go to, go to them. They, they'll figure it out from pictures or some other source. Um, but it was while we were still living in Maryland, I, was, I had a subterranean office. Uh, windowless, not in the office, not in the office. It was under the front steps, underground. It was cavernous, really. And being the introvert that I am and being in graduate studies, it was a great place for me to just go and isolate myself and, and dig into my reading. And some of you are wondering, oh boy, now we know where all of this stuff came from. Uh, but I subscribed. It was really pretty big deal because it costs close to $100 for a one-year subscription to a, a monthly audio tape. The pastor's update, and I had to get beyond my Church of Christ background to even consider myself a part of that group at that stage. Uh, pastoral, yes, a pastor, no. Uh, but I, I subscribed to it and started listening, and one of the tapes that came, and I still have them, uh, Deborah laments the fact that I can't get rid of some things, but uh, I haven't listened to them in, in years, but I still have that set of tapes, and there's one in there where, of all things, it was a missionary to Africa. I've shared a bit of this story from time to time. Those of you who've been around longer, it, it'll be all too familiar for you. He was driving his Jeep on the ridge of mountains, exploring a new area that he hadn't ever been to before. And he rounded a bend, and it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And in the villages of Africa, all across the majority of Africa, Around that time of the day, there will be the smoke of fires where they've built a, an open fire, three rocks, put their pots on it, and they start cooking their evening meal. Usually only have two meals. Morning is left over of what was left from dinner, if there was anything left over, and then dinner. And they're cooking, and so he sees all over this valley below these testimonies to how many people are living down in that area, and his heart just ached within him, and he said out loud, God, who's going to reach these people? Because he knew enough about the missionaries that had been assigned to that area to know nobody was working there. 
And he did not know whether he heard an audible voice with his ears or whether it was in his head or his spirit. He received the question, or the directive rather, ask me for them and I'll give them to you. Well, he, like me, had been schooled in cessationism. He wasn't a part of churches of Christ. There are other denominations. We don't have that market cornered. Uh, And that didn't fit his paradigm. So he, he just stuffed it and kept driving. And he rounded another bend, and there was another area totally different area and the same thing and this question welled up within him god who's going to reach these people ask me for them and i'll give them to you same statement same declaration Didn't fit his view of how God worked anymore. But it sounded so much like God that he he couldn't deny it. And he said, Lord, I don't know if that's really you. But if it is, I want you to show me. I'm going to drive down in one of these villages. And if this is your heart for these people, give me an undeniable opening. And he spent the next 20 years working in those two areas and planted hundreds of churches and was most, the most successful from that kind of standpoint missionary that that fellowship had ever sent to Africa. But he never told the supervisor in the mission sending agency that he went out from about this encounter with God. Because he knew that it didn't fit their typical approach. He had shared it with the guy who was speaking on this particular cassette tape that I was listening to. And he had died just a few years earlier And that guy who had heard from him the very stories of what God had said encountered the the missionary's last supervisor, the, the last guy that he reported to, at a gathering, and they knew each other. And so he told him this story. And that guy's words were, you know, We always wondered why it was so fruitful. There was no rejection. There was no critique. But there was an acknowledgement that something unusual, something remarkable had happened there.
I want us to read from Ephesians 6 with this swirl of re-engaging the enchanted thought perspective of, of giving the devil his due, but of recognizing the one who is with us is greater than the one who's in the world. One of Greg's last admonitions last week. Uh, the passage that swirls most often when you talk about the theme of spiritual warfare. And, and that's sort of what this series of three or four weeks has been focused around. Uh, I'll read it from a couple of translations. First the NIV and then the New Living Translation. Uh, Ephesians 6.10 Finally... Uh, that word's pointing us back to the fact that he's, he's said a lot of other things earlier. And I would encourage you, if you want to do something interesting, read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and then jump to this. I thought about doing it this morning. Uh, years ago, there was one of my sermons where I read the six chapters of Ephesians and sat down. Uh, there was a couple that was here for a couple of years, a couple of three years, and they've moved back to California where they were from before. And she messaged me, I don't know, three or four years later. You know, I'll never forget that Sunday that you just read from Ephesians and set out. Uh, sometimes we chop it up in such small sections that we lose the sense of the cohesiveness um, the reason I recommended 1, 2, and 3 is that's where Paul does his theology. That's where he declares the, the understanding of God at work in our world through Jesus to bring the church into existence as the body of Christ. This, this place, this visual representation of God at work in our world and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the practical application of that theology to life lived together in community. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Kyle, would you go ahead and put the slide up for me, please, or whoever's running the show up there? I want to read a second time from the New Living Translation. If you want to look at this, uh, I can't prove this, and it may not be particularly helpful, but for me, this is such an odd analogy for Paul to use. And yet we know when he writes Ephesians, he's in jail. That's how we usually describe it. These are some of Paul's prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon are the four letters that he writes during a time of incarceration. Now, when we hear someone being incarcerated, we primarily think about bars, uh, chains, shackles, those kinds of things when we're thinking more ancient. And yet, when the book of Acts closes, Luke's telling of, in those later chapters, some of Paul's travels, he spends some time in a jail in Caesarea by the sea. And then finally, he's transported to Rome. But when he gets to Rome... They don't put him in the imperial prison. He's under house arrest for about two years with an assigned guard. I can't help but wonder, did, did the guy or rotation of guys who hung out with Paul for those two years, did some of them ever bring their, were, were they wearing their Full armor. Did, did they bring these things? Did, was Paul living for those two years if it was in Rome or in Caesarea or another time, maybe that was, that's not recorded in Acts, that he was under arrest? Were their guards fully outfitted? Day after day after day after day, and that mental picture provided him a context to think about our spiritual lives. New Living Translation. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battles, you will be standing still. 
Stand your ground. Putting on the belt of truth. The body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I'm in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador, so pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him, as I should. New Living Translation gives this section the subheading, The Whole Armor of God. The full armor, the whole armor. We have an enemy. He's coming after us. And he uses different kinds of weapons. One piece of the armor can guard you from some of his ways of attacking. But if you only focus on one, you're leaving some openings that he will take advantage of. But before we think about Satan, I want us to recognize who's given us this armor. It's God. We're not left to our own devices. We don't have to manufacture our own protection. But we do have some responsibility to wear what God's given us. The helmet of salvation. You want to do an interesting word study. Some of us like those more than others. There's some. Run the word salvation in all of Paul's writings. Go to the other places, but start with Paul's. Since he's the one using this phraseology, give him the first voice of admonition to you about salvation. We know from our biology classes, from our own life experiences, our brains, our way of thinking, you know, if, if Satan can get into our thinking, he can set up strongholds, bases of operation from which he can undermine us in other places. How do, how do we undermine that? How do we guard against that? How do we protect ourselves? There's a needed focus on our own salvation. What God's done to provide deliverance, relief, hope, confidence for us. Our salvation rests in Him. The breastplate of righteousness. 
dressed in his righteousness alone. It's an old line from an old hymn that picks up on this theme. If we start focusing on our own rightness, we run two parallel, well, dis disparate options of temptation. One is to build ourselves up and become haughty because we've attained some measure of success in keeping some list of rules that somebody's given us at some point, or maybe we've developed them ourselves. Or we can be overwrought with our own failings. And we give the enemy an opening to just keep beating us up by reminding us of everything we've ever done that falls short of what we expect for ourselves. But when we're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus, there's a covering that's beyond us. Our completion comes in God. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You read through some of those Old Testament stories and you find the ways they would use fire to bring destruction. And the ways they launched fire was through those flaming arrows. Paul notes Satan's perfectly willing to do that. But God's provided a mechanism, a way, and it has to do with faith. Our faith and His faithfulness, God's ability, willingness, passion, desire to provide for us. Stand with the belt of truth. A few months ago, a, a friend of mine who was going through a very difficult time confessed to me that this is the one piece of the whole armor that he said, you know, it, it just never really fit. All the rest of them, I, 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 they're pretty obvious, the place, but the belt of truth. You know, a, a belt's pretty narrow and and, you know, other than holding your pants up, in this case, holding your sword on, what, what real purpose does it serve? But my friend had gone through a season of being attacked by others and his own integrity was being called into question. And, and he recognized the truth of God's Word and us living as men and women of integrity gives us protection. The belt goes around the bowels of mercy in the old King James. The lap of emotions might be a good modern way of thinking about uh, the ancients, the, the people of the Old and New Testament time. 
they didn't connect the emotions as much to the heart as they did to the, the gut. Where does your mother console, where does a mother console the injured child? It's in, in that lap. The belt of truth is not an insignificant piece of the armor. The feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And I've skipped over the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When I listened to that cassette, the words contradicted some of the things I'd been taught to believe. But the message sounded just like God. That was roughly 1990. 2000, 10 years later, I went to Novosibirsk, Siberia, sent out as a part of this church fellowship. And I saw a small, fractured fellowship of believers who tragically had been so negatively impacted by some of the divisions of our world, the Western world, that it was quite discouraging. To be honest with you, I didn't have a lot of hope for missions based on that one experience. And then, many of you know the story of God calling me to go to Africa on that first trip. And coming back and people here didn't know what had happened, but they were convinced something, something's changed about John. A few years later, when I shared with the congregation that I was going to be transitioning out of pulpit ministry to work with Final Command, Cindy Peake met me at the back door. She was the first one. I'd go shake people out. That's, that's been my longstanding tradition. And Cindy rushed back to me. And the words, first words out of her mouth is, it's about time. We've seen this coming for a long time. That's a whole other sermon series, and I won't go there. Timing of God. Timing of us responding to God sometimes. I keep talking about Africa because God's taught me some things in going to Africa that I wasn't anticipating. Have I shared with you the, the two dreams that I had? Uh, from time to time, different ones here have experienced dreams and visions. And to be perfectly honest, transparent, uh, there were times that I was a little jealous, envious, 
What's up with this? Uh, to be perfectly honest, most times I don't remember any dream, any, any detail of any dream. Uh, Deborah has these wild, vivid dreams some nights. And she can tell me blow by blow what went on, and they're usually frustrating experiences when she can't get to the kids and they're needing to be saved or they're needing to be done. Something's needing to be done, and it's, it's her body processing some of her anxieties about life and, and those challenges, and I got nothing. One of my trips to be with Brett and Christy in Tanzania, well, actually, I wasn't with Christy and the kids. I was with Brett the whole time. We spent uh, a week at a missionary conference in Kenya and then came down to the city in Tanzania where they live now. They were still living in Gaeta for a conference that went on, agricultural conference. And it, it was a wonderful time. Uh, they had more Western-like restaurants there in the new city. And we went to a place, and they had, had delicious oven, you know, open fire in the oven pizzas. They, they were delicious. It, it was the last weekend. I think it was on Friday uh, Brett had something he was going to do on Saturday. We would be together on Sunday. And then Monday, I was going to catch up a, a van to ride up to Nairobi from this city and then fly back to the U.S. And Brett had a salad. Fresh green vegetables. I said, Brett, you think that would be safe for me? And he said, yeah, it'd be good here. I had never eaten fresh green vegetables in Africa. So I ate that salad and enjoyed it until I didn't, which was the next morning, early the next morning. And I started being concerned. I'm going to spend five hours on a van full of people. We're going to get to the border. We're going to have to unload everything off of our van and take it in through immigration, going from Tanzania to Kenya, load it back up, get on the van, go further, catch flights, and I'm going to spend roughly a day, 20, 20 hours, in an airplane or airport, sick. Thank God I made it. Uh, didn't throw up, didn't have diarrhea, the obvious, you know. Uh, but I still felt really bad. Of all things, it was Matthew's birthday. And instead of me flying back to Nashville and Deborah picking me up at the airport, I flew to Tallahassee my last stop and she picks me up and we go to spend 
she's already there, but the weekend with the grandkids celebrating Matthew's birthday. I didn't feel well, and then I spiked this incredibly high fever. Went to bed, went to sleep, and I had the most vivid dream of Jesus. And he was teaching me some things that were answering questions I'd been wrestling with since a couple of weeks before that trip on that whole trip. And it was about the training process that I was using with missionaries. And it was so comforting encouraging, peaceful. And I woke up and I desperately wanted to get paper and pen or my phone or something and start writing, writing down details of what he had shared with me. And I didn't because Deborah was asleep in the same room and I was afraid I would wake her up and she would know I'd gone crazy with this high fever. The next morning, I thought through some of it. Some of the details were sticking, not all of them, unfortunately. I felt better in the morning, but then by late afternoon, the fever went back up and the same thing all over again. And Jesus appeared the second time in my dream. I'm ashamed to say I didn't take paper and pen with me. I didn't get up again. I wrote an email to two of my coworkers and gave them all the details I could remember. That was the best I could do or did at that point about it. I don't think it was as much about the details as it was about me needing confirmation. And some of my friends in the missions world who do more with dreams and visions and interpreting those things than I know what to do with them have all confirmed that it was about confirmation. That's the reason you got it the second time. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, God makes things true. But I have to honestly confess that in this vein of being transparent, I sort of rigged myself over the coals about not, not what happened, but am I that thick-headed that I had to be that sick for Jesus to be able to get my attention with a dream? I'm serious. I've really wondered, you know, Lord, am I that dull did, did, did I have to get sick for you to get through to me? Now, some people get real uncomfortable when I raise questions like that because they think, you know, that just doesn't fit God. God's not going to make you sick. 
And, and I understand that, and I appreciate that. And this goes back to some of Ben and my discussion on Job. I don't think of God as a puppeteer pulling strings behind the scenes to make things happen. But coming out of my feelings of abandonment as a child, I had to own up to and grapple with a, an awkward, hard question of why would God let that happen? I don't have to believe He caused it. But there are situations and there are circumstances, there are times when I have to grapple with the question, why did He let it happen? What's His angle what, what would he hope to happen to one of his children who comes through this, or a group of his children who come through this series of difficulties? For me, one of the greatest places of spiritual warfare is in my brain. This is the arena where a lot of it happens. Years ago, Mark, my brother, and I were dealing with another brother who was going through a very, very bad time. We'd taken his car to the parking lot of the local hospital where he was in emergency room. And left it and left it unlocked. And we'd driven back up on a hill to a parking lot of a local bank and we parked there where we could see the car and see him come out. And I shared some of my struggles with my brother about our other brother, but about this bigger context. It wasn't very long after I started going to Africa for those trainings and disciple-making approaches and strategies that I started noticing things going bad back here right at the same time I'd be going there. One of the strategies of Satan if he can't stop us, is to distract us. Siphon away energy, hope, confidence with other situations that appear hopeless.
Maybe when we get to heaven, whatever that means, or when heaven gets fully here, we'll get to unravel some of those mysteries. I really suspect they won't be that important at that point. But if they are, I'm confident God will walk us through the process and help us to see much more clearly. He's working a long game strategy. He's bringing heaven down. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The one piece of this passage that Paul is very, very adamant about that I want to close with the reminder. Notice he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That obnoxious, ornery co-worker is not your enemy. That son or daughter who's bringing you so much grief is not the enemy. Now, I warn you, if you bring Satan or demonic into the discussion, there are a lot of folks that are going to say, then you're saying I'm under the control of the devil? Well, no, that's not necessarily what we have to say. I'm saying there are places in our brokenness, in our fallenness, in our lives, weaknesses, that when they overlap, that place of overlap becomes the very place that he loves to attack. Now, yes, I do believe there are people in our world today who've experienced demonic possession. Personally, that, that's my studied conviction. There are places where people are being oppressed, and that's a whole lot more of what I think we encounter than possession. But those broken, residual, traumatic, past experiences where they overlap with other people become the hard areas for life. And Paul's admonition to us is very important. Put on the whole armor of God. So you'll be able to take your stand. It's not that you'll fight against other people. That you'll recognize who the enemy is. And how he's trying to work through this situation to undermine God's purposes. And more than anything else, I want you to recognize God's goal in this is that we can come out victorious with Him by His power, by His strength. We're not going into battle alone when we're putting on the whole armor, the full armor that God provides. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. Um, Remember, read 1, 2, and 3. Then go to this where he says, Finally, some of the implications of what he said 
rise out of this. God's provision, God's protection, God's purpose for us to make it through on the other side. Lord, we give you glory. Help us to meditate on your word. To chew those harder places in it. And to be wise in our application to our daily lives. Lord, we thank you that prayer, powerful intercessory prayer, grows out of this context of spiritual warfare. Help us to be true intercessors for one another, for those we love, for those who don't know you yet. In Jesus we pray. Amen.
announcements this morning. Uh, most of you know this already. I've been communicating uh, with, by text message with uh, our sister Linda Palmer. Um, her brother Gene passed away quietly and peacefully on 